The first reading is taken from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And you'll find this on page 1063. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Second reading can be found in Exodus chapter 3. It can be found on page 59 of the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Now Moses was sending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Ruitzites, Hittites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have been seeing the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, and I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will bring them to God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble to the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Havites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders will listen to you, and you and the elders are to go to the king of Israel and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness and offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch forth out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will take the Israelites, I will take the Egyptians favorable towards the people, so that when you leave, you will, go, will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman is to in her house is to have her articles of silver and gold for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you very much. Well done, Eunice, with all those names. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you today and always. Amen. I'd like to set the scene by sharing with you a little folk tale I came across this week. Bear with me. Once upon a time, five blind men came upon an elephant. What is this? asked the first one, who had run headfirst into its side. It's an elephant, said the elephant's keeper, who was sitting on a stool cleaning the elephant's harness. Wow, so this is an elephant. I've always wondered what elephants are like, he said, running his hands as far as he could reach up and down the elephant's side. Well, well it's just like a wall, a large, warm wall. What do you mean, said the second man, wrapping his arms around the elephant's leg. This is nothing like a wall. You can't reach round a wall. This is more like a pillar. Yes, that's it. An elephant is exactly like a pillar. A pillar? Strange kind of pillar, said the third man, stroking the elephant's trunk. It's too thin for one thing, and it's too flexible for another. If you think this is a pillar, I don't want to go to your house. This is more like a snake. See, it's wrapping around my arm. An elephant is just like a snake. Well, snakes don't have hair, said the fourth man in disgust, pulling the elephant's tail. You're closer than the others, but I'm surprised that you missed the hair. This isn't a snake, it's, it's more like a rope. Elephants are exactly like rope. I don't know what you're talking about, said the fifth man, waving the elephant's ear back and forth. It's as large as a wall, all right, but it's thin as a leaf and no more flexible than any piece of cloth this size should be. I don't know what's wrong with all of you, but no one except a complete idiot could mistake an elephant for anything except a snail. A sail, not a snail. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes, you see, our perspective makes a big difference to the conclusion that you draw in life, doesn't it? In the Growing Leaders group, we've been practicing coming to the Bible with questions that help us examine familiar passages in the Bible with new eyes to help us see if we can discover new truths. And that's what our morning sermon series is all about at the moment, looking at God through somebody else's eyes. Now, having looked at God through the eyes of Abraham and Joseph, today it's the turn of Moses. As we slip our feet into Moses' sandals just for a few minutes and listen again to the well-known story of how he encountered God at the burning bush, we'll see if we can work out what kind of God he knew and see what we can learn from that to help us in our own walk with God here in Bath in the 21st century. The first thing I think we notice is that Moses knew a personal God. Moses was a man with an interesting past. He had faithful parents, Amram and Jochebed, about whom we know actually very little. He was born at a time when his people were in slavery in Egypt and were being treated really horribly by their masters. 
In a miraculous turn of events, he survived attempted genocide when all the babies of the enslaved people were killed at birth. And he was adopted into the most influential family in the nation. He benefited from an education and wealth as he grew up, and yet he threw it all away in a moment of uncontrolled anger when he murdered a man and hid the body. He became a fugitive and ran to the desert. It's a very human story of success and failure with more twists and turns of fate than you could find even in an episode of EastEnders. You can find it all at the beginning of Exodus if you'd like to read it. We find him here, an old man. He's in his 80s, having spent 40 years simply shepherding another man's flock of sheep in the inhospitable desert. He's hiding from his past, probably not expecting very much of his future. He's a broken man, painfully aware of his failures and inadequacies. And yet God comes to meet him in that very ordinary place. I doubt very much that Moses was expecting to encounter God when he set out that morning. And yet, this is a radical, life-changing moment for Moses. He thought he was hiding in the desert. But God was molding him and teaching him in that waiting time. And today, God calls him by name. It's not a random accident that it's Moses that runs across the curious sight of a bush aflame in the desert. God was waiting for him, knowing him intimately, knowing the mess of his past and the misery of his present. But he has plans for his future to give him hope and purpose. He wants to enter into relationship with him. So what better to do than introduce yourself? Now, when someone addresses you by name, it's quite hard to pretend you haven't heard, isn't it? When someone calls you by name, it indicates that they've both seen and noticed you. When someone calls you by name, it's because you matter. I have a friend who works for the Ministry of Agriculture, and it's his job when escorting the Prime Minister on a visit to quietly inform him of the name of the next person approaching and any relevant details that he might need to know. It's a courtesy intended to indicate that the administration values the work of the person concerned. But God doesn't need an aid to help him. The Bible tells us God tells his people not to be afraid because he has redeemed us and called us by name. We belong to him. He knows and recognizes us. He's trying, is he trying to attract your attention this morning, I wonder? Is he calling your name and asking you to linger and have a chat with him? God calls Moses by name. He's intimate and personal, but really he is not his pal. The God Moses meets in the desert that day is a holy God. Fire in the Old Testament indicates purity and holiness. 
Having caught Moses' attention by such an unusual sight, a bush of flame but not burning up, he introduces himself from the burning bush, and Moses is overwhelmed. He introduces himself in terms that Moses will understand. I am the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In a very few words, he's laying out for Moses his whole CV, I think. Moses is far removed from his ancestors in time, place, and culture, although he will have grown up hearing stories about them for his whole life. Centuries have passed. He's in another land, and life for him is not looking so successful. But in those few words, God is saying to him, I have not changed. He was saying, remember what I've done for your people in the past. Something in the experience of each of those forefathers was relevant to Moses. Abraham left everything in response to God's call and headed to a foreign land, to an unknown destination. Isaac faced impossible odds against death and experienced a God who provided and whose promises can be trusted. Jacob discovered the folly of living by his wits when he should have been trusting in God's promises. He says to Moses, as he says to us today, I have seen, I have heard, and I care. We notice that it's God who reaches out to Moses. He who is holy calls out to the humble, inarticulate shepherd to catch his attention. Moses is rightly fearful, and yet we see that God wants Moses to remain and continue in conversation. In order to do that safely, he tells Moses to take off his sandals, that's all. It's a simple act, but an act of obedience to acknowledge God's sovereignty. God is holy, but he makes himself accessible to the ordinary man. We might view Moses taking off his sandals like the taking off of his old self, just like that cozy old jumper that we talked about last week. Moses is so aware of his own inadequacies that he has concluded he's permanently excluded from God's service. So much so that he actually argues with God. I find this amazing, this bit. He goes to some lengths to tell God what an unsuitable choice he would be for the job. Now, God doesn't pretend Moses' life has been other than it really is. But he asks Moses to set aside his view of himself as he sets aside his comfortable old sandals and kneels before his God. Are you arguing with God this morning? Are you busy telling him in your heart that he's made a mistake? He could never want you. You're not good enough, clever enough, nice enough to be in relationship with him. Perhaps you feel with the mess of your past, God could never use you for anything good. Well, let's read on because if that's you this morning, you're in good company. And this is where we see something else extraordinary 
about Moses' God. He is a personal God. He is a holy God. But he's also a saving God. God has heard the cry of his people and he has a plan to save them. It's a plan generous beyond anything they could have imagined. A plan to provide them with a home in a land that simply flows with good things. They will not arrive there penniless and downtrodden like the slaves they have been reduced to in recent years, but weighed down with jewels and riches given them by their Egyptian neighbors. Most surprisingly of all, he chooses Moses to achieve his aim. Now, I suppose he could have acted all by himself, but he delights to work with humankind to take the ordinary and transform it into something extraordinary. The bush was quite ordinary, but with God's intervention, it burns with holy fire without being consumed by the flames. Extraordinary. Moses was a shepherd, beset with insecurities and inadequacies, not unlike most of us, in fact. God used him in the later years of his life to do extraordinary things for his people. What about you and me? We're ordinary people. We're flawed and inadequate. Some of us are older than others. But the question the story before us poses is will we take off our sandals and kneel before God? Will we offer all that we are, the good, the bad and the ugly, for his service in the kingdom? Will we be obedient and allow him to use us in his service? He doesn't call us because we're good enough. And neither does he promise his support and presence on condition that we try to become good enough. When God called out to Moses, he knew exactly what he was doing. When God calls you into relationship with him, he doesn't magically transform you into someone else. He calls you because you are you. Nor does he magically transform your life's circumstances, I've found. There is no promise of an easy life for a Christian. In fact, when Moses accepted God's call in the immediate, I think his life got harder. God simply promises us he will be with us and he is sufficient in our weakness. He calls us and his presence is what he promises. He calls us to a position of faith and trust in him. What matters is not really so much who we are, but rather who he is. This is what he reminds Moses as Moses grumbles away at him. He says, I am who I am. I am is sending you. Now, for a man who doesn't speak well, 
Moses is quite happy to explain to God that he is ignorant and incompetent, how he lacks authority and personal stature before the people, and in fact that he's simply unwilling to move that far out of his carefully crafted safe place in the desert, where he daily wanders, feeling rather sorry for himself, actually. I think that's quite bold, don't you? Hundreds of years later, this same holy God will send his son, Jesus, to continue the conversation with anyone who will stop and talk to him. He so wants to be in relationship with his people who are busy getting on without him that he reaches out to us in costly love to save us from the life we've chosen. As we gather around the communion table shortly, we'll tell again the story of his great sacrifice his life and cruel death on the cross, his resurrection to new life, and his love for us that motivated it all. We'll take ordinary things, bread and wine, and through them remember an extraordinary sacrifice given in love for you and for me. As we gather round the table, we come before a personal God who calls you by name and wants you to stop in your tracks and talk to him. He is a holy God before whom we should bow, who asks for our life in response to his love. He's a saving God who has heard the cry of our hearts and who cares. He has great and generous plans for this church, for the people of Walcott, for you and for me. And amazingly, he wants to use us to bring them about. God can use anything and anyone in his service. He wants to take the ordinary that is our lives and transform it into something quite extraordinary for the sake of his glory. The question I leave us with this morning is will we let him? In a moment or two of silence, let God speak to you this morning. What is he saying to you today? And how do you respond? <laughs>